Hello and welcome to SifPop Writer's Room. My name is not Aaron, it's in fact Robert. I'm one of the editors at SifPop.com, and today I'm joined by two SifPop writers, Jason. Hello. And Luke. Hello there. We are here to talk about some of the biggest movie releases of September 2023. We are going to talk about A Haunting in Venice, The Creator, Dumb Money, The Equalizer 3, Expendables, uh, The Nun 2, and probably a few wild cards at the end. Time codes are going to be available in the episode description if you only want to hear us talk about certain movies. And we won't be discussing spoilers, so you're safe there. Lastly, we'll be rating each one of these movies on the classic Sif Pop scale of like it, love it, dislike it, hate it, or it was just okay. So with that, let's get going. Let's get into these movies. Um, we're going to go alphabetically, so we'll start with A Haunting in Venice. Synopsis from IMDb reads, in post-World War II Venice, surprise, surprise, Perot, now retired and living in his own exile, reluctantly attends a seance. But when one of the guests is murdered, it is up to the former detective to once again uncover the killer. Uh, Jason, let's start with you. What do you think of A Haunting in Venice? I'd go firmly right in the middle of like it. I think it's one of those movies where it's like, it never went too far into one side. It was never like too much of a horror or too funny or anything, but it had a good blend of all that enough to really keep me going to where like maybe it would have been even better if it had leaned heavier into one side or the other, but it did a good blend of all those things to kind of keep me entertained throughout. And I should note this is one of several, I guess you could call it sequels on the list where I had not seen the previous movies. So okay. it was coming in dark, but I at least knew the concept of a Poro mystery sure. and had that vibe going in. So, Yeah, I have seen the first two, but I imagine that you don't need to have seen the first two. Yeah. It's just, yeah, you just need to get the context of like, I get it. He's retired. He's got some history with this author. Right. We're good. Mystery. Tina Fey is not even in the other one. So like, that's oh, no? a new character for, oh, okay. for the people who've seen the first two. Luke, what did you think? I also liked it. I, on, on a maybe future rewatch, it might be bumped into low side of loved it. Oh, wow. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. I had maybe like few issues. What Jason mentioned that sometimes, you know, the horror doesn't feel as horror-y because of the rating and because of obviously they want to attract wider audiences. But yeah, no, I have enjoyed myself. I I will just meet you guys in the same place where I also liked it. Uh, maybe, maybe lower side of liked it, but that's not because I had too many huge negatives. It's just because these movies kind of just go chalk for me. The Poirot, Brana detective movies where it's just like, there's a solid mystery. He uncovers all the clues and then he explains it at the end and then we're good. Uh, it works really nicely. And Brana is a very assured director. He's been doing this for a long time, uh, obviously. Though what I liked about this one is probably my favorite of the three. What I like about it is that he brings a brand new visual style to the series. Mm -hmm. It's got those wide angle lenses. It's got those Dutch angles. Um, the way that he positions things and blocks the characters within the scene, it's much, it feels much more, um, not assured, but much more thought out, much more direct and distinct than maybe the first two where mm -hmm. the mystery is the focus. Uh, whereas kind of the atmosphere is the focus of this one. And I really enjoyed that because it's got a really good atmosphere. And I think that's what it does most successfully. Yeah. I thought the Venice setting worked. 
I I'm I'm one of the few people who somehow enjoy the Death on the Nile. I know it's a hot take, but I didn't hate it as many. I actually enjoyed it. Yeah. But the Venice setting with mo- with actually them shooting in Italy has definitely helped. It seems better. <laughs> yeah. It seems more lively, and Tina Fey surprisingly worked with you know Kenneth Branagh and his Poirot. I wasn't sure about her when going into the movie because she's obviously such a bigger-than-life character, and yeah. she's worked very well. At least that's what I, at least that's what I thought. Yeah, I think it took me a few minutes to get over the seeing Tina Fey as the comedy character from mm-hmm. the past, seeing Liz Lemon, and it just took about a couple minutes to settle in. And once it got going, I was like, okay, no, she's fine. Funny enough, a piece of trivia. This is her first movie or TV show ever in her almost 20-year career that has not got a light label comedy. Did you know that? I did, I did not, not know that. that. That's uh, on a on a haunting in Venice, like IMDb's trivia, and I checked, mm. and yeah, she's only done comedic TV shows and comedic movies. And this is the first movie ever that has doesn't have the comedy label. And I was like, that cannot be right. And it is right. Wow. I wonder yeah, how I guess... that came about then. I feel like I feel like Kenneth just you know like uh, for better or worse he likes these big casts of people yeah. like you know Murder on the Orient Express had all the great people like Johnny Depp and you know Daisy Ridley all, Penelope Cruz Death on the Nile for all its problems had you know <laughs> mo- probably most problematic cast ever <laughs> if you know looking back <laughs> at it and now like you know I feel like Tina Fey. Tina Fey is now at the point of her career where she probably wants to spread her wings. Like she's proven herself many times in, you know, in a different, you know, variety of comedies from the Dirty Rock I still haven't seen, but I heard about to like even Muppets. Like you know, she was in a Muppet movie and she was great. Oh, yeah. So I feel like she just now is looking, you know, kind of like, okay, I'm not getting any younger. Let's see, let's get some challenges, let's get some dramatic roles, you know. And this, I, I thought this was a great platform for her. Yeah, I'd say so. I'd love to see her in something even more dramatic the next time too. This 100%. felt like she, for a movie like this, there isn't much in the way of a comic relief, but it felt like if you were going to pick someone, maybe she was, but mm-hmm. yeah, obviously she wasn't out there doing a bunch of slapstick stuff or anything. It was just sort of, she was a little more lighthearted, but, but yeah, I'd love to see her go full drama now that yeah. we've seen her in this. Yeah. I think she's definitely the highlight of the cast apart from, uh, Brandon's Perot because he's always fun mm-hmm. doing that that accent and with the giant mustache. Uh, but I didn't realize this until after the movie ended that the kid was Jude Hill, the kid from Belfast, Same. which makes uh, a lot of sense given that uh, he basically played young Branna in Belfast and he was a good sweetheart of that movie. Um, I feel like he's the heart of this one too. hundred percent. I not only that, Jamie Dorman Dornan is yet again, yep. his dad. Mm-hmm. So I was just like, oh, I like this kid. Like, you know, this guy, this kid has got some chops. And suddenly I was like, what? Jude Hill? Isn't that the guy? From... Oh, it is. Oh, great. Right. Loved it. And yeah, I do I like think... how this movie kind of dove into the kind of making a skeptic think about believing just a little, cast mm-hmm. that doubt just enough where, I mean, any discernible moviegoer knows where the ending is going to be headed eventually. But the fact that they sure. kind of keep it going like that long enough and leave it up to question that was entertaining to watch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I liked that about it. Um, 
as well, kind of diving into the psychology of Perot a little bit uh, makes it interesting. So it's not just a mystery every time. Mm-hmm. Um, because while that's entertaining, give it a little bit of depth and you have me, you know, a little bit more interested. And I think that's what it does here. Uh, you mentioned the mystery and knowing where it's going. Did you either of you? Well, first of all, have either of you guys read the book? It's based on mm-hmm. Halloween party. That, that, no. Christy. Right. So then did you, were you able to see where the movie was going or who the killer may or may not have been? I'll really. admit no, no. No, there's other movies on this list where I could have seen endings coming much more clear. This one was more, <laughs> yes. more I knew it was going to be a poro summarizing in front of everybody who did it and why. But yeah, the actual mm. who, no, they kept me pretty well in the dark on that. That was good. I might be like in a minority here, but I am unless I'm really bored. I'm not trying to solve the mystery. I'm trying to be you know as a part of like almost of the mystery. So I'm not trying to mm-hmm. figure out who done it. If I'm unless I'm bored, that's how I know like the movie is bored, boring to me. Is is because if I try to you know okay, so who who who's done it? And in this movie, I was quite entertained for, throughout most of it. So I was like. I don't really care. I'm just, I'm having a good time. Unfortunately, my brain isn't wired for trying or not. My brain is just like, you're going to try to figure it out whether you're enjoying this or not. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, sometimes I do hate that. It's like, I really wish I could just watch it. I also have to try to like zip the lip sometimes when I'm watching a movie with my wife and I start seeing the pieces coming together. Cause sometimes I'll be like, Oh, that person did. They're going to do that. And mm-hmm. sometimes she's like, Oh, come on, let's just watch uh-huh. it. Yeah. <laughs> But she's also the one who will look ahead to spoilers on like the next episode oh. things and shows. So it goes oh, yeah. both my, ways. My girlfriend does the same thing and drives me <laughs> insane. I, I'm kind of more like you, Luke, where I want to not try to figure it out. But I'm also like Jason in that like my brain just kind of starts trying to figure it out because I'm watching a mystery and I want to know who did it. Yeah. Um, I will say I was able to predict... Haunting in no, this one's haunting in Venice. Definitely Nile, pretty early, um, but haunting in Venice, I predicted it pretty close to the end. So I think that means, to me at least, in terms of the way that my brain works, that the twists and turns were good enough, and they weren't like out of left field in a uh, in an annoying way. Because sometimes things happen in movies that it's just like, all right, that was impossible to, to predict. That's just kind of <laughs> out of nowhere. Uh, I think everything kind of logically flowed from one thing to the next. And as you got all the evidence, it was like, oh, I put it together just before Perot. Um, You also mentioned, I think, Jason, you mentioned that Branna does the speech at the end where he just kind of explains everything that he's been putting together for the whole movie. Yeah. Which is 100% a hallmark and staple of the murder mystery genre. Um, And that's why in my letterbox review for this, I called it utterly competent. Because, like, it hits every beat exactly as you would expect. But at the same time, it does it, like, a little bit better than your average one because of that atmosphere and because of... I think this is something I'll say a couple of times in this movie, because or in this podcast, because of the cast. Um, the cast from beginning to end is great. Okay. I didn't even mention Michelle Yeoh, who also, I think, gives a great performance in her limited screen time. Oh, yeah. um, so I think... Something that that is just has a baseline of competence is then elevated by a cast and elevated by its atmosphere. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd I'd watch a bunch more of these, even though 
I've not been blown away by any of them. Same. I'm hoping he will continue making these, especially the lesser known ones, because I don't think this this was filmed as much as the other, you know, stories like, you know, Orient Express and all these. So right. as long as he's having fun and as long as he's getting good people to appear there, like, you know, yeah, I'm on board. It feels almost like watching a good BBC series like Sherlock. So in mm-hmm. my head, it's like, okay, that we just finished series one. So get series two coming next, get three more movies in the pipeline. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. Let's move on then to the creator. <laughs> I'm looking forward to this conversation. Against the backdrop of a war between humans and robots with artificial intelligence, a former soldier finds a secret weapon, a robot in the form of a young child. Uh, Luke, what did you think of this one? I thought it was just okay. What about you, Jason? Uh, I'd be like low side of loved it on this one. I think okay. it comes with wow. some caveats, but I enjoyed it a lot. Yeah. Oh. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to say I am low side of didn't like it, bordering on hated it at times. All right, we're um, running the gamut. I like it. Yeah. For the people who don't follow me on Letterboxd, I fell asleep the first time I watched this movie. Um, there's this, when he first gets to the kid, until the rest of the movie, I was nodding in and out the whole time. And that is like mm. three quarters of the movie. Yeah. Uh, so I, there was no chance I was going to be able to intelligently talk about it on a podcast. So I had to go back and see it a second time. And... When, when I got out of it the first time, having slept through a lot of it, uh, which I will say isn't necessarily the fault of the movie. I've been getting up early, staying up late, been busy. Um, I got to the end. I was like, wait, is that it? What it, Did I miss a lot and just feel like that there was some stuff missing in there? Um, and yes, I did. I did miss a few things. So I'll give it that. But walking out the second time i didn't think it was much better narratively than i did than when i had fallen asleep through most of it um yeah narratively is where it bothers me the most but i don't want to start off with the negatives because this movie does look incredible like i'll give it that it looks amazing uh probably the best visual effects of the year at least from a major blockbuster like in a year when Indiana Jones and Ant-Man have come out and looked just awful. like Especially considering this, the budget. Yeah, this mm-hmm. is like $86 million mm-hmm. compared to two and $300 million for those two that I just mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, this one looks tactile and real. Like the robot people and their circle tube things in the back of their head, it just like fits seamlessly. Uh, it reminded me of Ex Machina, where I'm just like, I don't know how this is real, but it is somehow. Yeah, it just looks great. Um, I'll let you guys talk. I'll, I'll take a break for a second. Well, I thought, do you want to start with since you loved it? Maybe just put it in a, in a good mood before we oh, bring it down? Sure. Let's let's lift it up and then drop it down. Yeah. Which, yeah, I will echo the visual effects, obviously, are a huge highlight of it, where it's so refreshing in the world of having the voids of star Wars or all those things like that. And just so many movies that we mentioned of just bad special effects lately to get something that they just go to real locations, do mostly practical effects. You get that. It just feels real, which Mm -hmm. is refreshing to get every once in a while since it's pretty rare these days. But yeah, uh, for this one, I would say 
I agree narratively. It's got a lot of issues where we talked about predictability and seeing where things are going on the last one. And it's like, yeah, it, this one's telegraphed a mile away. Like I didn't feel a lot of surprises along the way. And it felt a little bit like a, almost like you said too, of just being competent of like, okay, it, it knows the genre it's in. It knows it's the sure. humans, AI mixing mm-hmm. kind of thing. Like it felt very just by the numbers in that sense. And I think I wouldn't have been shocked if I fell asleep at a couple parts. Cause the first, <laughs> I'd say almost half of the movie, I kind of was thinking to myself like, okay, this is good, but I feel like it's being overhyped. I don't really, not really getting that feeling. Like sometimes you can watch something and respect it for what it is, but you just don't get that sense inside of you of why it is so good that everyone's saying that. And, but then somewhere along the way in the second half of the movie, I think it was just the emotional connection to some of the plot points and then just the acting. I think this is one you mentioned in the last one, you're going to say a lot of times today, the cast elevated it kind of thing because of the cast, it was better than it could have been. And I think the two lead performances in this, especially the child actor, which is a rarity to see a kid in their first ever on-screen performance be so good. Yeah, I think those are the things that really pulled me in and got it just over the hump to where I could have easily seen going towards where you guys are with the movie for a lot of reasons, but just because of those couple of things, it pulled me up to the top. Mm-hmm. Madeline Yuna Boylis is the name of the child actor. Very brave yeah. to read that off. I would have been afraid. <laughs> I Very good chance I pronounced it wrong, but I wanted to give her credit one way or another. Oh, that's true. We should. No, we should, because that's that was my thing, why I rated it fairly high, even though I didn't care for it anyway and as much is because of uh, her performance and David Washington. I, th- I believe it's John David Washington. Is full yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Because, you know, he's, he's, I feel like he's following in his dad's footsteps where I can see him being one of those like titans of acting in basically 30 years where no matter the movie, he's always great. Like he never drops below even like a solid territory. He's always great. And the connection, the chemistry between him and the child was great like honestly you know that was the main sticking point for me where it lost me and that's what robert is talking about is not only it's predictable i I don't mind predictable as long as you put some unique twist on it yeah but this movie borrows or steals uh quite a few ideas (laughs) from different movies that, that have done the ideas the movie is talking about in much better better way and in much further like depth where i can see chappy for better or worse even uh, even uh, Alison Janey had a uh, Hugh Jackman's haircut from chappy not only the robots look <laughs> kind of like chappy robots but you know i could see you know obviously ex machina blade runner even the apocalypse now like when i when there was a shot from the helicopter yeah. i was like is this an apocalypse now? No. And then uh, reading on IMDb, yes, it was. And I don't mind. Oh, they pulled the. Uh, too. They also pulled Platoon, yeah, the yeah. running to the helicopter or Tropic Thunder, I guess, if you want to mm-hmm. put the hat on the <laughs> yeah. hat. You know what? Tropic Thunder, yes. Yeah. Um, but I, and again, like, look, all the best people steal. You know, that's the uh, writer's rule. You need to steal from the best, right? So I have no problem with uh, Gareth Edwards stealing from the best. But where I have the problem is you need to put your unique spin on it. And besides the him utilizing the budget, 
and like the movie looking as good as it did, I don't think that's enough spin for me to be interested in even rewatching the movie going, you know, down the line. Like the, everything was predictable. All the story beats that were supposed to be meaningful, they didn't hit whatsoever. And even though I liked his chemistry, John, John Davids with the with a kid actor or actress, like at the end of the day, I didn't really care what's gonna happen to either of them. And you know, the, the movie ends and is like hooray, hooray moment, and I was like, okay, this was a movie. <laughs> you mentioned one of my favorite phrases, so I just I'm gonna pre uh, repeat it. But Luke, you mentioned before we started recording that it's one of the movies of all time, and I just hundred um, <laughs> percent. Like this is the most like competently made. It's a movie of this year. Like literally, like it left me cold. It left me kind of <laughs> indifferent. And I, with the, you know, when John David being the actor he is, it shouldn't happen. With Gar Edwards, with you know him being a competent director, I don't think it should have happened. I hope it did get at least like a nomination for the VFX, because that's how you should you know utilize almost hundred million dollar budget. We're gonna talk to him about a movie soon that has a hundred million dollar budget and doesn't look like it. So at least you know, so Marvel, there's no excuse. You know, MCU, there is no excuse for your movies, <clears throat> Quantumania, look like the way they do. Yeah, you also. I just wanted to throw in another movie comparison for some reason this reminded me a lot of district nine too um yep just maybe just in the visuals and like the integration of like humans and another species or form of living whatever you want to call the robots or ai people uh Mm -hmm. just the way that the it integrates the two together just feels i feel like it has that sort of yeah, there was that like, sort of like refugee camp vibe mm-hmm, to a lot right. of where they were setting it and where the people mm-hmm. were living. Yeah. So there's a couple Neil Blomkamp references because you said Chappie. Or is he? Yep. He was Chappie, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, it was. Um, <sighs> so let's hear it, Robert. Can I be a little bit more negative now? If that's all right. Yes, please. Please do. Please do. <clears throat> uh, I'm growing a little bit tired of the lone wolf and like the found family cub type of thing. Uh, we get it in The Last of Us. We get it in Mandalorian. Um, Logan is a big example. I was even feeling Looper with this one because uh, even though it's not quite the same thing because Emily Blunt's character is the mother and she's present the whole movie, um, the kid in that is like special and has abilities and they need to keep him safe. So I was getting a lot of those vibes. I just wasn't getting any of the charisma of any of the... You know, Pedro Pascal times mm-hmm. two or uh, Hugh Jackman. Because for some reason, I don't know if I'm just comparing John David Washington in my mind to Denzel, who's one of the greatest actors of our of his generation, let alone all time. But I just don't see the John David Washington thing. Like, I don't I, I don't see any personality from him. Um, I was... I see limited personality from him because Luke made a face towards me. Um, <laughs> I know that, that was his character in Tenet mm-hmm. to literally just be bland nothingness who could do action. But I was seeing a lot more of that here. And apart from uh, the opening when he's with his wife, I really, I don't know. I don't get it. There's something missing and I can't put my finger on it, but there's something about John David Washington that 
rings hollow for me. Um, and on top of that, I also put in my original letterbox review that the first time I saw Rogue One, which is also a Gareth Edwards movie, I fell okay. asleep <laughs> uh, and had to go back and watch it. I don't fall asleep in movies often. And for some reason, it's happened twice for big Gareth Edwards sci-fi movies. And that is a coincidence, but also maybe it's a little bit not a coincidence. Because, maybe it's a team. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I, For me, he is what Zack Snyder is accused of being. Um, and that's like an incredible visual storyteller and incredible image maker in genre stories. Mm-hmm. But almost completely soulless and doesn't really have much. There's not much behind the eyes, uh, so to speak. So for me, I'm just sitting here watching the creator and looking at great images, just like in the very beginning as Nomad is flying over that the water. For some reason, like the blue beam going over the water is just really impressive to me um, and just going over the terrain. Just like I'm looking at these amazing images and some great action sequences and I'm feeling absolutely nothing. And I'm just kind of bored out of my mind (laughs) watching it because at the same time, I don't understand what's going on in this movie either. Uh, And I swear I was awake the entire second time I watched it, but I didn't get it. (laughs) This is where I almost want to spoil it a little bit, but like there was a character who reappears towards the end and then they are understood to have died. I thought, Mm. but then they're reunited again towards the end. I don't know. I think I know what you're talking about. Yeah, no, I know. I know. uh, uh, It's hard to explain without spoilers, but the child had to do something with it. There's a plot point. Okay, let's let's not spoil it, but there's a plot point about how, you know, you can help out the AI to copy your identity. And he even mentions, uh, John David's character mentions in a movie, well, no, this is how I knew this character is still alive, because I saw a video. And the, the, his buddy says, no, it's probably just a, a, you know, like she was probably in that program. You know? mm-hmm. And yeah, I and the child, you know. She does something to help out. Yeah. yeah. Again, okay. it's hard not to, not to spoil it. It's hard, like yes. talking about this specific plot point without actually going into the nitty gritty of how this that world works. Like, look, do I understand hundred percent what's happened in that moment? No, but I feel like that's the other thing. The child is the most powerful weapon, right? Mm-hmm. So I feel like that's the thing where she is evolving, she's growing. Where the moment she hits like you know puberty or adulthood, she will be unstoppable. So I don't, and I don't think, you know, and I think movie even misses that trick where it's, I don't think it just goes beyond. Oh, don't she they can say she doesn't age everything. at one point or did I, I am I making No, I up? think they say she can age. That's why everybody's so amazed that, you know, she's a like AI, but she's a okay. child because AIs are no, you know, in, in that world, from what I understood, the you know, right. AIs are only adult, you know, they are not children. So she's like the yeah. first one to be a child. And he, uh, is it Ken Watanabe's character? Or somebody says she actually grows. She actually can evolve. And that's the big point with her. That she, they, That's why they want her killed. 
she they did they in the US government doesn't want her to become too powerful where she can shut down every single weapon in the world and every single thing. And I think the end is supposed to be hinting at that she, her power is more than just that. But again, it's just messy. So yeah. we can speculate. Yeah, just now realizing I picked up picked up on everything with her. Like she's the only child; she can do all that, and that's unique. But I didn't think until now about how there are a bunch of they're all adults, but there are a lot of like elderly robots too. So now yeah. I'm having that going through my mind, replaying the movie of trying to be like, do they age to the point of being elderly and dying as robots, or are they just creating robots that are already elderly to have a good yeah. mix? And it's the thing, it's, it's, isn't it? It's I feel like what we are all struggling with is the rules are not really clear. And again, that goes back to my original point. Like, for example, Termina- obviously the Terminator is a big example of this movie <clears throat> steals sure. from. And the Terminator <laughs> at least have some, some rules. Sure, there are different rules for, you know, whatever movie we are talking about. There's like, you know, the rules are slightly different for each sequel, but there are some rules, right? And this movie, just, yeah, we have this kid, we have most of people like middle age, there are some older ones as you see, as you say, Jason, and yeah, it's not really clear, but, well. Can I ask one more question, too, about the plot? Like, mm-hmm. what exactly is Nomad? Just like a giant weapon? Like It's a giant it, weapon. Is it, there's only one of it? Because it, it feels yes. like it's in a lot yeah. of places. Can it move really fast? I don't know. I think, I think just being in orbit, it has that sort of range to be able to kind of do a lot. And I think the AI is very centrally located in a specific region sure. they called New Asia, yeah, or something like that. So I guess maybe that it just kind of hovers in orbit right over that. No, because yeah, the, the AI gets banned in the US after you know. I don't think that that's a spoiler. It happens in the first, and and it shows in a trailer like once the yeah. Los Angeles gets destroyed, the you know the opening scene says, "Oh, we banned AI, but uh, Asia is not." That's why we are, are you know, and he, the president, I guess, is supposed to be. He says, Whoever "Don't get is, me yeah. wrong, the Asians are not our enemy. It's the AI that's the enemy, but they are refusing to shut them down, so we need to go to war." And that's why, you know, and that's why they build this nomad thing where it effectively can track all the AI. But again, how? I'm not quite sure. But also like, in like a sociopolitical lens, it's like all the AI just happen to be Asian. And like, that's a, another interesting I, angle. I don't oh, yeah. think it happened to be. It just, again, like I, I think the movie implies because then there's a 10-year jump. Then there's a 10-year jump and then there's a five-year jump. So suddenly, like, we are jumped, like, 15 years, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, what? And then, That's like, true, basically, so I bet there yeah. probably was non-Asian AI in the yeah. 10 years before, the, yeah, maybe before the explosion. And, and since yeah. U.S. shut it down, the only only body, because they even say, like, the, the you know, the new Asia, that's the only, like, big superpower that keeps developing it, despite us telling them, please don't do it, because they're going to kill us all. But yeah, it's and again, there was just that kind of. I I read your comment about AI, Robert, and I I feel like you've been a bit too harsh, and at least in that point, can we talk about that for a minute? Yeah, I that was the last thing I wanted to get to. So mm-hmm. I my my thing is that I think it's a hundred percent pro AI. Um, mm-hmm. The reason why I think that is a spoiler, so I'll leave it 
I'll leave the details out of it, but I, mm-hmm. the movie comes down 100% in the pro-AI mm-hmm. field. And why um, is it bad? Because, uh, first of all, Gareth Edwards originally wanted to use an AI script, or an mm-hmm. AI score. Uh, he wanted an AI to <laughs> mm-hmm. replicate a Hans Zimmer score, and then mm-hmm. he showed it to Hans Zimmer and was like, what do you think? And then Hans Zimmer's like, no, I'm going to write my own score. So mm-hmm. it's just like... Um, the way that it treats AI in general is just the oppressed instead of mm-hmm. the potential oppressor. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, this gets into some murky territory because most of the AI characters that we see uh, have Asian appearances. So I'm talking mm-hmm. like just purely the solely, AI. yeah, purely AI and not the race mm-hmm. that they appear in the movie. So just like have the having them being in the right and the one that needs to be saved. Mm-hmm. We mentioned District 9. That feels like an alien is an other um, mm-hmm. because they're another living being that's come from somewhere else and all of a sudden they're put in these camps. But in here in The Creator, the AI is something that humans made that is dangerous. And so now it needs our sympathy because it... Mm-hmm. I, there's there's a line in there. Ken Watanabe's character says like the nuke was a human error. Like it goes way out of its way to say that AI is okay actually. And I just think for it to come out now, especially during the writers and the actor strike when AI is a big thing um, in an artistic field, I know that there are uses for AI that are helpful. Mm-hmm. Like my job outside of Sipop like uses AI, and it's not in a way that's gonna replace humans as of yet hopefully but like mm-hmm. it's a slippery slope and to come out so unabashedly just being like yes we need to sympathize with the computers and be have and like welcome our new computer overlords feels a little bit scary did they say that i'm gonna push back on a couple of points because i don't sure. think the movie said that i don't like they are, look look i think we can all agree or yes the movie is 100 pro ai but i again i don't see it as a big problem because i the question of ai is not when or sorry it's not if but when and now we are closer than ever to have some sort of ai that that you know surpass there are many ais that have been for decades that surpass humans like chess you know Mm -hmm. no no matter how strong a chess player is the ai we've already you know we've already crossed that bridge 20 something years ago and i feel like that's the that might be the only point for the creator where I would give them some plus points is we have this dystopian sci-fi about, you know, new being launched. But as you said, it's not the AI's fault. And I feel like the movie is at least trying to say, look, AI will happen and, or is happening. That's the other thing. Like I, you know, the movie is, was, must've been written like two, three years before any kind of strike yeah. was, you know, so I don't think that's a fair comparison. Like it just came out in the wrong time. But I don't again. But I don't think the the movie even says because the AI we see is working alongside humans. They are not stealing necessarily any jobs. They are working alongside them. Like there's police. You know, for example, there's many police officers, right? But we still mm-hmm. see even human police officers and military people alongside AI, not instead of AI. And I thought that was at least something differentiate. You know, it wasn't unique enough, but at least something unique where you know oh we just you know leave all the fighting to the robots 
So because you know ro robots are replaceable and he, you know human life is secret. No, they fight along each other. So I actually like that, and I don't. And I feel like that that's the kind of message of that movie. You know, this is coming. Maybe in twenty years. Maybe in fifty. Whether you know whether we will still be alive, that's another matter. But it's coming, and I we should think about how now you know how we treat AI and how we treat it when it comes, because you know that it's it's that kind of slippery slope where you know we. I don't think we can have them have AI being our servants just because we made them. And I, that's a, that's a, but it, I feel like they're skewing into like more of his philosophical debate rather than a movie debate. Right. So, say from, yeah, ahead, say from the uh, movie side, I would say I am curious what it would have looked like if there had been more of a Dawn of the Planet of the Apes kind of vibe where you had a Koba to the Caesar of having mm -hmm. maybe some of the AI mm -hmm. kind of wanting to take a different course of action against the humans and being more aggressive. But then I also think maybe they were afraid that creates sort of the Batman versus Superman argument of if there's a 1% chance the AI is against us, we have to take it as a yes. absolute certainty. <laughs> so <laughs> who knows if that might have been part of the decision making of why they went so pure on the AI side of things and mm -hmm. made the humans out to be the bad guys. Mm -hmm. And again, don't get me wrong, like, you know, the AI, the threat is real and I don't want people to take, you know, especially the art jobs. We cannot have AI write right. scripts or write music. I'm not saying yeah. that. We mm. need to understand AI and we need to utilize it to improve our lives, but not make art. Like, let's let's make one thing painfully clear. We should be the ones making art. We should be the ones writing music, scripts, all that stuff, until maybe there is some sort of point very deep in the future where... AI surpasses us even in that and can produce something with true emotions, not just mimicking emotions. And then we can have that dialogue. See, so I want to re respond to two things. One, bringing up Planet of the Apes is almost the same to me as uh, District 9 in that like those are beings that the apes or the the aliens are beings that already existed mm -hmm. um, as opposed to the AI, which is, again, created by humans. Mm -hmm. um, and... You bring up all those points, Luke, and I will say that it's very fair. I'm not going to push back too hard, but at the same time, I'll take what you're saying a step further and use it as a criticism of the movie and say that I don't know how much the movie wants to engage in all of those ideas that you're talking about. And maybe that's its problem in that just like we know what's going on with AI, especially in the creative field. Um, mm -hmm. And then there are just like potential issues you know, it shows that uh, um, the kid, I don't know, uh, Alfie, she like can interfere with things just because she uses it for good doesn't mean that all AIs are going to use it for good. So it's like it doesn't. We again, the, the meta ideas of it outside of the movie, we have a larger understanding of AI than what is just presented in the movie. So mm -hmm. seeing it presented like this, uh, almost this naively and then not. Um, interrogated very much is almost a bigger problem to me than maybe that's more why I just like it's pro AI and that's why it's bad. It's because it's like, it doesn't do the work to say why pro mm -hmm. AI is a um, valuable. Again, all take. the teams, all the teams, you know, I, I would agree there. All the teams are shallow. Everything. Like, I don't think there's anything below the surface, unfortunately. Right. And I think it's quite shallow in pretty much all, all their teams and which, 
you know, if you read a couple of reviews, everybody kind of mentions the same thing, which is this. So I think we can agree there. Yeah. Yeah. And going back to my original point about Zack Snyder, it's just like, I don't know if like, this is what people say about Snyder a lot. It's like, I don't know if those bigger ideas are even on Gareth Edwards mind as much as just mm-hmm. like, Hey, making robot people with the things on the back of their head looks cool. And making these action sequences look cool and making the kamikaze mm-hmm. arms and legs R2D2 is cool. <laughs> like, um, so I, I really don't know how much credit to give him on that front. Yeah. Um, I think we had a good conversation there. We're, that, that was one of the longer conversations at a single movie we've done on this show. <laughs> Let's move on uh, to Dumb Money, which I think might be a shorter conversation since only two of us got to see it. Dumb Money is the ultimate David versus Goliath tale based on the insane true story of everyday people who flipped the script on Wall Street and got rich by turning GameStop into the world's hottest company. Um, Jason, since you didn't get to see this one, Luke and I will have a maybe brief, more brief conversation, uh, and then we'll move on to our next movie. So, Luke, what did you think of Dumb Money? I was surprised how much I liked it. Uh, okay, I thought it was okay. Yeah, probably high side of okay mm-hmm. because it is entertaining, mm-hmm. but I also kind of similar to the creator but in a different way like i didn't i don't know how much there was underneath it's spread a little bit thin but mm-hmm. since you like it um talk to me about why you liked it the main reason i thought dumb money displayed this gen z meme generation well like you know you can you can say quite a few things about this generation and i loved how they were you know they, they, they how they displayed it this kind of apes to get a strong and all the memes <laughs> and all the other stuff. Um, I thought, yes, if you, if some, if you were to ask somebody, describe an internet in the year 2021, I would show them this movie because it's loud. It's wildly edited. It's, you know, inappropriate. And it, it, it encapsulates everything. What you would, unfortunately get to see if you you know go on reddit <laughs> yes for better or worse for better or worse yeah i'm with you it does a good job of showing that i hadn't thought of it on that level mm-hmm. um but hearing you talk i definitely agree with you um for me probably going off of what you were saying a little bit i guess is that it's just pretty kinetic it's not very long it's an only only like an hour 43 mm-hmm. um it moves along pretty quickly, but that's also a positive and negative because there are about 17 different storylines. <laughs> 17 is overstating it, but uh, it follows maybe what six or seven different characters or groups of characters. Um, and every time it goes back to like Anthony Ramos, I'm like, Oh, I like this guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's a good actor and who makes you care about things. But he has limited screen time compared to the rest. And mm-hmm. we don't really know much about Nick Offerman and Seth Rogen and um, uh, Vincent D'Onofrio, who are the hedge fund rich guys, the billionaires. It's like, mm-hmm. that's about all you know about them. For as much crap as I've given Adam McKay on this podcast, actually, um, the last one of his movies that I actually really did like was a big short. And that's partly because it helps you understand topics that are more difficult to grasp for an outsider and Mm -hmm. for as someone who is not mathematically minded whatsoever 
and does not understand the stock market. I don't think that dumb money really does a good enough job of getting me in. Um, but I like the characters enough. They're compelling enough. And like I said, it's entertaining enough just on a base level to get me to, you know, buy in or uh, not be too bored. And like I said, mm-hmm. it's brisk enough that I'm not going to be checking my watch too much. Yeah, just to, you know, just to kind of, you know, uh, continue with your thoughts. I actually liked it focuses on six or seven characters and mostly on the common people rather than the big guys, which, yeah. yes, I understand why it's a negative for you. It, it was a positive for me because I like how they included a few different folks from different paths of life, different ages. Like we have America right. Ferreira being the mom. Everybody knows mom like that, like at least one, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we follow the students and they have different experience with this. We obviously follow Paul Dano's character. And I actually, like, for for the problems, you know, you don't get to know them. I Maybe for, like, Paul Dano and America Ferreira, you don't get to know the other ones as much. I would agree 100%. Especially the big guys. Yes, you don't really know Seth Rogen or what's his character about. Or Nick Offerman, I, I still forget he was in the movie. <laughs> He right. was there for about like two minutes altogether, maybe. It's because he has no and face for her. And he seems to like he seems to be like a big player. Like he seems to be well, he is the one who bankrolls every you know you know them when they run out of money, really. But yeah, He's we the don't get to know. Guy. Yeah, and we don't get to know. But I feel like for the purposes of the movie, you know, the Goliath versus the you know David, the corporations versus the little guy. I feel like for that. It's it's almost a benefit. At least for me, it was a benefit to put the faces on the little guys we all know, mm-hmm. rather than you know. Oh, let's try to understand these CEOs that have sixteen billion dollars. Right. I should have added that I do completely agree with you. Like I like seeing the different perspectives, like you mentioned, the mm-hmm. college student, the mom, just the guy living at home, mm-hmm. um, because it does it does feel David versus Goliath, like the synopsis said, and like you said. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah that all works well and um by the time you get to the end i mean it's a true story so there's not much spoiling it and Mm -hmm. it happened two years ago which is a i don't know it seemed early but i guess like i said i don't follow the stock market so i don't really know how much this has affected things yeah now that was my only complaint about this movie that was my only critique would be like you you don't get to know the characters i think you said it quite well and also, it feels a bit too early to make a movie mm-hmm. like this. I think it would be better to make it in a couple of more years to wait. Maybe there's going to be more information. Maybe to catch up with the main guy, you know, because he effectively, you know, went dark. Like, right. in real life as well. And I, I, unless you know him, I don't think anybody knows what he's up to now. So I would, I would be intrigued in that, you know, oh, this is what happened in 2021. And then we have five or ten year jump and this is what he does now and this is how it worked out or didn't work out we don't know because you know i hope it works out well for him but we don't know sure yeah but yeah that would be the my only criticism but yeah i i thought it was it, it it was better than it had any right to be yeah the big short came out in 2015 the housing crisis was 2008 so that's seven yes. years and this is like yeah. They probably wrote the movie a year after the whole Wall Street thing happened, so, mm-hmm. so that's pretty. Uh, that's a pretty quick turnaround. Um, 
also going off what you said, I did like the idea of the little guy versus the big guy and seeing, and I'm wondering where it ends up. Like, like Mm -hmm. you said, um, because it is infuriating on a certain level, (laughs) like kind of like we were talking about in a similar sense, we were talking about before the pre-recorded where it's just like, here's big guy, uh, Nick Offerman, basically. Oh, and the Bucky from Captain America. What's his actor's name? Oh, Sebastian, yeah, Sebastian Stan. Stan. Yeah. yeah, the owner, the creator of Robin Hood and his partner. Um, these guys are just like in power to stop the people who are doing this mm-hmm. in America because they, you know, they they don't have the money that they need just mm-hmm. working an everyday job. Meanwhile, these guys are just like, trading and pressing buttons and mocking each other on the phone and they're worth billions and billions of dollars unless they're Seth Rogen and they're losing it. And um, the most infuriating part is, as the movie tells you, and I don't think that's a spoiler, nothing's changed. Right. Nothing, but it also, know, the big guys it say, are still there. It says that, but doesn't it also say, like, Wall Street will never be the same or something like that? They will never be the same, but unfortunately I think it, it implies there's going to be stricter rules for the little guys, there's gotcha. going to be stricter rules. I don't know how they would enforce it because effectively, what the, again, and I don't, and I'm not going to pre- uh, pretend I know all the ins and outs of Wall Street and what they've actually done. The mm-hmm. you know the, the subreddit, but I think there's going to be some restrictions on what because effectively they played Wall Street at their game and they and the internet somehow won one time. <laughs> I think the Wall Street guys will make sure that this never happens again. Yeah, because it's like emphasized throughout the movie, Paul Dano and everyone else aren't doing anything illegal. Yep. But to the big guys, it's like, <laughs> we're the ones who are supposed to be cheating the system, not these guys. Like, what is going on? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's a very discouraging look at it. Mm-hmm. My last note, I wanted to ask what you thought of Paul Dano in this role. I thought he was a like a perfect cast i like i thought he is a bland enough where you know and awkward enough where he sells it and you get the feel for the okay i can understand if the main guy was somehow like this i can see it this is the first time i've ever thought paul dano was miscast really Uh, i love paul dano like Mm -hmm. Swiss Army Man, Little Miss Sunshine, The Batman, mm-hmm. Prisoners. I think he's incredible in all of those and in a lot more movies. Uh, but like those are all a similar type of character when it's like a, a loner outsider. But it's mm-hmm. the type of loner outsider who doesn't really want attention. Maybe in the case of the Riddler, he does want attention. But it's like he's good at playing that outsider character who operates kind of on the fringes. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, it, I was bumping on him playing the guy who's pretending to be the outgoing character of Roaring Kitty, I think. Mm-hmm. I don't think was he's he terrible. Right. Well, that's what he's trying to portray, right? He's trying to portray this online persona. He's like, the what's up guys, we're buying these bets because I like the stock or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but I even this energy in bit. that... But even in even the energy in whole in those like streams, right? You can still feel he's got like he he's like trying to put on this persona, right? Oh yeah, but like he's kind of like instead of oh what's up? Oh okay, this this today we're gonna talk about this talk and it's gonna be great. It's gonna be great. No, this is not his persona. His persona is like 
hey guys, so I actually <laughs> like this talk, and I know what you think. And it, to me, that was a like, and that's why it, he worked for me because he is the almost a lister, where he is great, and as you mentioned, in everything he does. But yeah. he's not A-lister enough where he would be too distracting for him to be that guy. To be the guy who streams from his basement, who has a wife and a kid, and who dips chicken tendies in the champagne <laughs> when he reaches something. <laughs> like so to me, you know, for me, he I thought he nailed it. Again, I, I wouldn't necessarily say, oh, I'll give him an Oscar for this right now. Right. No, no. But I I think he did exactly what was on the paper. Again, if the real guy was anything like that, only my guest, never seen him, sure. never met him, didn't watch his streams. I'll say he makes it work because he's Paul Dano and he's a great actor, but I yeah. still felt like something was a little bit off. Uh, Fair though I do, I do take what you're saying. Um, I said that was my last point. I also want to say I'm still tired of Pete Davidson. I, I said it when we did the Transformers episode earlier this month or earlier this mm-hmm. year. I'm just tired of the Pete Davidson thing because he's Pete Davidson and everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, any final thoughts from you? No, I'm, I I think it's, again, it's much better than it has any right to be. And one of the biggest surprises of this year for me. Cool. Let's move on to the Equalizer 3. Robert McCall finds himself at home in Southern Italy, but he discovers his friends are under the control of local crime bosses. As events turn deadly, McCall knows what he has to do. Become his friend's protector by taking on the Mafia. Uh, I'll start this time and say high side of okay. And that's like a generous high side of okay because I really wanted to like this and there's a lot that I like about this movie. Uh, Jason, did you get to see Equalizer 3? I did not. Technically, I saw about five minutes of it because I tried to see this one. But the theater had, like, it wasn't showing in the app at all for buying the tickets. And they were at that time of the morning where it was, like, buy at the concession stand if you need a ticket thing. And mm-hmm. so I just bought a ticket for Expendables and tried to go in. But then it turned out I was the only one who went in to sit down at all. So I sat down, watched a few minutes of it, and then the screen went dark because I think oh, no. they said, oh, no one's here. Let's turn it <laughs> off. So then I just went and got Expendables off the list anyway. So mm-hmm. so I did see Denzel wake up in a bed, be all old and tired, <laughs> and then go try to drink a tea and get given a coffee instead. So that okay. tiny bit I saw seemed fine, but but no, I didn't <laughs> like get around. It's like 20 minutes. Okay. Yeah, it was a few minutes late getting into, so trying to figure out the ticket thing. So mm-hmm. so from that, I can say it seemed fine, but I think I missed kind of the crux of the movie. <laughs> Probably. Uh, Luke, what did you think of uh, Equalizer 3? I'm pretty much where you are between okay and liked it, like middle, yeah, just in between that with maybe like it on my future rewatch. Have you seen the first two Equalizer movies? Yes, and funny enough, I rated them exactly the same way. All of all of them are exactly the same rating. Hmm. I think they've. I think I like the second one the best, but they're all very similar to me. Um, okay. They're all teetering between okay and liked it. Because my favorite part of these movies, and this is my main point for Equalizer 3, is that I just like when Denzel is chilling and, you know, being a a valuable part of whatever community he's living in in his respective movie. He's helping the kid paint in the second one. In the first one, he's helping. He's, like, chilling and trying to save Chloe Grace Moretz. In this one, he walks around Italy all the time and gets tea and coffee. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I'm, I don't want to bash his son anymore, but I'll say <laughs> that Denzel is incredible. I can watch him just sit and drink tea and that's a compelling screen performance to me. And it's, mm-hmm. he's great at it. Um, just give John David 20 years. I'll I'll keep watching his movies because I have a g- disease, which means I can't stop watching new movies. But um, I'll be around to see what happens. But yeah, with Denzel, I'm just glad and happy to watch him. And then the action is still as good as it's ever been, even though it's fewer and further between mm-hmm. in this one. I echo everything you just said. For me, you know, if you rate actors... There's like this Titans cat- category that's the S tier mm-hmm. and Denzel all time. And then Denzel 100% belongs there. He, as I mentioned before, the movie can be not great, but Denzel's all never slipped for me into even solid. He's always been great, no matter yeah. what movie he's in. And him, seeing him in Italy, just having, as you say, having a time, chilling, helping out the locals and becoming part of that community. I mm-hmm. thought that was very well done. That where you can see first time where he walks, still with the like you know the cane, he's not fully a hundred percent, and you can see the locals are looking at him a bit funny. It's like, hmm, what? Who is this dude? I've never seen him. Okay, and then by the end of it, they are you know, they are like you know, on the same page with him. And without spoiling anything, because that was a that was a very good scene involving the community, yep. and I thought it worked very well. It didn't seem rushed. It seemed it seemed it seemed just fine. And again, as you said, action it's always quick. It always deadly, and it yeah. it's not a John Wick by any means, but it's solid action. Yeah, the main negative for me is that there's too much time spent with the bad guys, I think. And mm-hmm. I've said that about few a few movies this year, like Renfield and Cocaine Bear. For some reason, these movies all have good protagonists, but spend too much time like talking about the mob or the undercover crime ring. It's like, mm-hmm. I just don't care. You could give me Denzel fighting faceless bad guys, and as long as he's... Um, protecting his community like you were just talking about i'd be happy to watch that mm-hmm. so i think this movie is about two hours if it had been cut down to like an hour 45 i think it would have been much tighter and i might have easily just gone right into i liked it um because we're just going to be repeating ourselves now i don't really have much else to say i just like watching denzel and when mm-hmm. the focus goes off of him for long stretches and talking about the the uh bad guys i'm just like zoning out but as soon as he comes back that's when i'm back in no same i think we can move on because i'm i have pretty much nothing else to say it's a it's a solid movie and denzel makes it without denzel it's an okay movie it's an average movie about a guy in italy but with denzel being the guy in italy it elevates it by like at least one level uh yeah i should have mentioned for dumb money that the cast also elevated mm-hmm. the movie for me because that's what I was referencing towards the beginning of this podcast that that was one of the casts that I was happy to besides Pete Davidson I was happy to watch because even when you don't really know much about the billionaires I like those actors and mm-hmm. same thing with this like you said if it would have been a mediocre movie outside of Denzel let's move on to Expendables 4 
Armed with every weapon that they can get their hands on, the Expendables are the world's last line of defense and the team that gets called when all other options are off the table. I guess that doesn't really uh, say much about Expendables 4. That just explains the team. But this is the fourth time around. Luke, what did you think of Expendables 4? Those are my thoughts. I didn't... Okay. Uh, I, uh, I... Okay... Hate is such a strange, uh, strong word for me. I'll say between didn't like it and hate it, it's just bad. Jason? I'm going to say there's an old song. Well, yeah, I guess it's old now. I think it was by Plain White Tees called Hate is a Strong Word, but I really, really, really don't like you. But mm-hmm. I'm going to go against that and just say, no, I hated it. It was it was bad. <laughs> I think uh, we're all going to agree on this one because I also very much hated this movie. Where do we want to start? Do we have any positives to start off with? The last 20 minutes, maybe? Like, the action is at least decent. Yeah. yeah. I'd say there's the some 20... okay action towards the end. Yeah, earlier in the movie, the action felt just very... Ugh, eh. But, mm-hmm. yeah, towards the end, there's some, some good set pieces, and there are some of the more martial arts-style action, too, I did enjoy from those characters. When Tony Jaff actually fights... And they don't yeah. cut around him too much. Yeah, it works. But yeah. unfortunately, that's for about five minutes of the movie. Yeah. Yeah, it's so weird. The draw of the first three Expendables movies, which I don't particularly care for. Like, a couple of them are fine. The second one's okay. But it's like, you like seeing all these over-the-hill action stars who mm-hmm. just come in and basically play amalgams of themselves, uh, their personas, their public personas, and like, the characters that they've played like Arnold quotes lines from the Terminator and Bruce Willis quotes lines from Die Hard and you don't care because that's the point like it's not trying to be serious and it's doing exactly what it wants to do here the only one of those stars that's left is Stallone and then like Dolph Lundgren is in it a little bit and it's just a bunch of action people and not like action titans you mentioned Denzel being a titan like Mm -hmm. these used to be full of action titans and that was the only reason I cared to watch them Mm -hmm. and Stallone is not in a large portion of this movie and I do not like Jason Statham whatsoever (laughs) and (laughs) I think he earned his right to be in that conversation though in the last 20 so years like he's not like Stallone or Schwarzenegger's like stature like 100% but I feel like he is pretty much as close as we will ever get to that kind of action movie star. Because he's in that many movies and yes. because he's well known. By but default, I don't pretty much, yes. Like, right, I don't like him in those movies for the most part. So, mm-hmm. like, seeing him continue to do his Jason Statham thing mm-hmm. when I was, like, signing up for a franchise with Stallone and Willis and Schwarzenegger and go down the list. I'm like, I already watched The Meg 2 this year. I don't need to have <laughs> another Jason Satham being Jason Satham. Mm-hmm. Jason, do you want to take it, take it so I don't you know, talk all the time? Yeah, let's touch on just... I mean, we gave the creator props for good special effects, so let's make sure to rip this one for being god-awful. Yes. I might 100%. be dating myself a little, but there were some scenes that reminded me heavily of the old Late Night with Conan O'Brien sketches where he would do the desk driving, and it was basically just him and his sidekick would sit behind the desk with a green screen behind them and he would hold up a little steering wheel and kind of move it around and they'd have crazy stuff playing behind them. And there were some scenes that I was just like, it's that. 
but it's not intended mm. to be funny. So right. <laughs> so that hundred percent. That's the movie I was talking about for uh, when we talked about creator. Like you know, there's gonna be one big budget movie. Yes. Ah, okay. Hundred yeah. million mo- like uh, estimated hundred million dollars budget, and the plane landing scene in the first thirty minutes, I believe. Mm-hmm. It it literally took me out of the movie. It doesn't happen that often. I'm I, <laughs> I like I I watched it in the cinema. Obviously, I watched it in the cinemas, mm-hmm. and it literally took me out for about five minutes. How bad. I know we cannot swear, so like I'm just gonna stick with bad. It looked, <laughs> it was awful. It I, I it reminded me of Sci-Fi Channel, and uh, not in a good way, not in an endearing way. This is this is had a budget of hundred million, at least or estimated. And this no, no, no. And as bad as the special effects like that were, and as lazy as they felt, and as Sci-Fi Channel as they felt, you could say the exact same thing about the acting. It felt so mm-hmm. just phoned in and. Just mm-hmm. they knew how bad it was. They knew how cheesy the dialogue was. And not even in that, like you said, with the old characters kind of reliving their old lines in like a wink nod way. It wasn't even that level of bad action movie dialogue. It was just like groan inducing level of just, oh my God, what, why? That is the thing. I 100% agree, Jason. 100%. Like, that's the thing. Like, I am actually a fan of these these movies. And I've rewatched uh, First Expendable, which went dipped slightly in quality for me. But I still enjoyed it. And the part of it was the, the group, the group dynamics. Yeah. And in the first, you know, few, I would say even a third one, it they work. In this one, everybody seems checked out. Everybody seems, and not just the script. We we need to talk about the script like in soon because holy, <laughs> just. But no, everybody like even even the banter between Stallone and, and Statham for the little time you know Stallone is there, just felt like it's not banting properly. <laughs> it's just not not working. Like everybody felt like like they just sign in to you know to cash on the paycheck, which is fine. That's their job. But I was bored, and I thought. They are not having a good time. Not neither of them. How long has it been since Expendables three? Two thousand fourteen. So yeah, nine. So years. nine years. Like they're coming back to make a fourth one. But mm-hmm. like, was anyone clamoring for a fourth Expendables? Was like, it doesn't feel like the audience wanted it or the creators mm-hmm. wanted it. It's it's one thing if like the people making the movie they wanted to go hang out again and make another Expendables movie. That's fine. Mm-hmm. But at mm-hmm. least. But like it doesn't show on screen, and no one in the audience is like, "We need to get another Expendables movie without most of the cast." It just doesn't make much sense. And that's the thing we can we you know we're obviously joking about it. We don't know. Maybe they had a blast on that on, on that set, right? Making they could this have, movie, sure. but it doesn't translate into onto the screen. It like it just felt awkward. It felt stale. It felt it just felt bad. Uh, can I ask a question? Mm-hmm. There's a plane crash scene, and uh, there's a body as a result of that plane mm-hmm. crash. Mm-hmm. Do they keep that body's arm? Yes. Yeah. At the end, yes. <laughs> what? I I couldn't believe it when I was watching that. Yeah. Because that's the logic. It was very odd. A lot of things were very odd, and yeah, we did talk earlier in other movies about predictability. My God, you can see these things coming a mile away in this one. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's 
speaking of the plane crash, yeah, it's just bad. But yeah, I'll also say if anyone listened to the Sif Pop podcast discussing this last week, I feel like that was cathartic for me to get out of that movie and have that available to be able to uh-huh. listen to. Because I was like, I don't know if I can wait four or five days to start ripping on this thing. I need to hear about it now. And everything they said was kind of exactly how I feel, including the good point they made of how messed up it is that there was a point in this where a character essentially throws away his sobriety and it's like a Popeye moment of eating oh, spinach. Oh, you're right. Yeah. yeah. I thought that was a great analogy they threw out of like, yeah, they just kind of, it's not even meant to be a big moment. It's just thrown away. And it's like, why include that? Mm-hmm. You, there were so many bad moments that I was trying to keep in my head to write down afterwards that I <laughs> completely <laughs> forgot about that. But that is like, mm-hmm. it's like plays epic music after he finally takes his swig out of his flask. And it's like, <laughs> he's doing it. He's going to be cool again. It's like, what yeah. in the world? It's a whole bunch of people it's... mocking him for being sober, and it's a good thing that he's not anymore, apparently. They say know your audience. Maybe that's they know the very <laughs> niche crowd that they want to cater to is going to kind of clap in a moment like that. I don't know. Not for me, though. Not for me. No. I Neither guess I'm more. Golden shower plot point. So, no, oh, a lot of things yeah. weren't for me in this one. Yeah. <laughs> I guess on moral issues between AI and throwing away sobriety, at least we can all agree that that was a bad moment. <laughs> 100%. Yeah, like, can we talk about a script for a moment and yes. uh, like how it fails in both exactly these like lines and moments, like, you know, golden shower moment or conversation and the throwing away sobriety and how it fails even with characters and especially introducing characters. And especially Megan Fox. Can we just, you know, address that? Because, like, yeah. you know, I'll, I'll, I'll start because, you know, I'm, I don't give a no matter. This is not about <laughs> Megan Fox. I don't, I don't hate her. I actually enjoy Megan Fox. They made her such a bitch. She is unlikable from a very first second. From a very first second. And again, I'm not talking about Megan Fox. I'm talking about the character right. because of how we are introduced to her character, Gina. We are introduced to her in the middle of an argument where she's loud, where she's just obnoxious, where we don't know anything about the context of the fight. We just know they are fighting and just it's uncomfortable. And we and she was supposed to kind of take over this franchise or should have gotten her own movie. There is a talks about like female, all female expendables. Okay. I didn't but know that. yeah. How? You introduce us this character who is unlikable from the very moment and then leads the team, gets them captured the first second, you know, the first second they got on a board, they get captured. She doesn't, she's not influential enough to actually, you know, work out a solution. It's Randy Couture who, like, you know, basically saves the day. And Mm -hmm. at the end, she maybe kills one or two people. And that's her entire contribution. And again, I'm like I don't think that's a Megan Fox's fault. I think it's the three guys who wrote the screenplay who didn't know how to write for a female character. The screenwriter's throwing in some light misogyny on top of everything else. Exactly. It's and again again, I need to make this painfully obvious and painfully clear because I know like I'm being made harsh for especially with her. And again, no neither characters worked. But her one, since she's the new character and she was supposed to be the kind of maybe there's gonna be female expendables and she's supposed to be the leader. How are we were we supposed to root for her? I I, I like I think so. 
But on the plus side, though, we talked about everyone phoning it in. At least Mm -hmm. her introduction was the one time someone wasn't phoning in the performance. She was putting some effort into her yelling. It wasn't good, but I guess she was trying for a second there. That's something. And it only took a movie about half, you know, half an hour for us to see her in the underwear. I guess that's a win. (laughs) Hashtag feminism. I just don't understand anything about this movie. Can there ever be a female action character again where their go-to move isn't the scissor leg thing? Or oh, is that yeah. Just, yeah. Yeah. Ilsa does that over and over in the Mission Impossible movies. Oh, and yeah. ScarJo in Marvel. You know, and, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I will echo that it's not Megan Fox's fault because this is a weird pull, but I watched the two live-action Ninja Turtle movies for the first mm. time a few weeks ago, and she's actually really good in those. She's one of yeah. like a genuine highlight, um, mm-hmm. and that's one where you could, you wouldn't knock her if she phoned it in like like she does yeah. with Expendables Four, but she doesn't, and she's really good. So again, it's it's a screenwriting problem, not a Megan Fox problem. No, hundred percent. We've bashed on Expendables Four a lot. Do you have mm-hmm. any last last bashing you want to get out before we move on? No, I think I'm all bashed out. It's it's just bad. Don't most of the time I'll even a movie I don't like, I'll be like, I mean, if you want to go see it for kind of formulate your own opinion. But this one I would just be like, don't just stay away. It's just bad. There's no redeeming qualities, even for the fans of just straight action with no substance. It's just not even good by that standard. I will echo everything you just said, Jason, because I am the person who loves 80s, 90s action movies. Mm-hmm. Maybe a bit too much, you know, and maybe rate them a bit too highly on occasion. Mm-hmm. And even I say, let this franchise die. Let no, if this is the if this was supposed to be the big great return, and this is what we've gotten, just no, no. Let's talk about the nun too. Armed with every weapon they can get their hands on. Oh. <laughs> I I copied down the synopsis for Expendables next to the nun. Whoops. I mean, they get their hands on what you could call some weapons at some point. That's not totally wrong. Let me read the correct one. 1956, France. A priest is murdered. and evil is spreading. The sequel to the worldwide smash hit follows Sister Irene as she once again comes face to face with Valak, the demon nun. That makes much more sense. Uh, I'll go first again and say I didn't like The Nun 2. I didn't hate it. Maybe sometimes close, but it wasn't like offensive enough for me to say I hated it. So I'll just say I didn't like it. Uh, Jason, what did you think? Yeah, I'd say right firmly in the didn't like it. Maybe high side of didn't like it, if that's even allowed to be a thing, just because I guess there's some atmosphere and there's something about bad horror that is at least still watchable but but no it's it's not good and luke i didn't see this once as i need to catch up on my conjuring universe movies so i'll abstain from this conversation cool for the nun for those listening if you also haven't seen a bunch of conjuring you only really need to have seen the first nun um Mm -hmm. and even on that level you don't really need to have seen it uh Jason, it sounds like you're a little bit more positive than me, so why don't you go ahead and say some things about The Nun? You know, I was going to say, this gave me a chance to be, like, super caught up on Conjuring stuff. I haven't seen the Annabelles, but before this I had only seen the three Conjuring movies themselves and The Curse of La Llorona, which is only Mm. tangentially really in the universe anyway. But uh, the day I watched this, I thought about just going in blind of just like, I'm just going to go see The Nun 2, whatever, good enough, but 
I decided just throw on the nun, watch it real quick before. And I would say this definitely for me falls short of what the first nun was, which also wasn't anything amazing. But I think the first nun I would have been mid to high side of just okay. There was enough happening in that one. There was some interesting story, at least, of this convent and different things going on and sacrifices being made and an overall creepy vibe and aesthetic that was going on. And this one just didn't have that for me. I think maybe they upped the production a little bit on this one. There was a little more cinematography that went into it. There was some interesting direction. But story-wise, it just didn't get there. And oh my God, the scares were just so lazy and predictable. And there wasn't one moment where I felt the slightest bit afraid, at least even in most bad horrors, they can kind of cheaply jump scare you to give you that quick feeling of thrill. A jump scare or an image here or there that'll get you, but yeah. Yeah, and even most of those, it's like, you see it coming. Maybe it's enough to just get you a little, even though you know it's coming, but but not too much, which is a shame. Uh, Well, yeah, I think I lost my train of thought there just thinking about the averageness of this. So I'll let you <laughs> jump in and get back on that in a second. Yeah. I don't, I don't like the first nun either. I'm not a big horror guy. Um, doing this podcast, I've actually watched more horror this year than I normally do. So I'm starting to like become more familiar with some horror tropes and how they can be used effectively. Um, so even watching, you know, mediocre horror, I'm like, hey, I at least see what it's going for here. And that's what I was hoping for, at least with the nun uh, to be, maybe mediocre at best uh the nun too that is but it's not even that uh because like you said the story is just kind of lacking um it's lacking in terms of quality but it's also overstuffed to me uh i don't remember how long the nun two is but it wants to follow the same characters from the first one so it brings back tysa farmiga who's actually the sister of vera farmiga which is a nice bit of synergy uh, for the for the franchise. But I think it would have been better if it didn't stick with her character because uh, in the first one, she is partnered with this guy. Um, I'm double-checking his name. Maurice. Uh, mm-hmm. And he's like the main one who has the stuff happen to him. And at the end of the first one, he uh, is possessed again when they thought they defeated the nun demon. So that's kind of the catalyst of this story that he, the nun is still around through this guy being possessed because he has an upside down cross on the back of his neck, uh, which is fun. And it's also terrible. Like these movies are already to some extent spoiled for themselves. Cause at right. the end of the first one, you see he's still possessed, but at the end of that one, you also see that later in the conjuring stuff, they interact with him after the events of the second movie when he's still possessed. And you know, the nun character exists in I think the second Conjuring movie. So mm-hmm. it's like there's a lot of built-in like removing some of the tension there even of knowing there's not going to be full resolution at any point in any of these movies. Right. Where where is this like girls school? Do you remember? I believe it's in France. Yeah. I think so they that's... work their way across from some like the nun sort of goes on a European tour working her way over, <laughs> but I think she gets to France. Right, so Maurice, uh, or the the nun by way of Maurice is in France at this girls' school where, mm-hmm. uh, again, I need to look at the action. Anna Popowell, who plays Susan in the Narnia movies, I have never seen her 
since the Narnia movie. So it was kind of good to see her again. She has a daughter and she's a teacher at this, at this school. Um, and Maurice is kind of like the, uh, the caretaker of the grounds. And she has a daughter and he's like friends with the daughter and they have a nice little wholesome relationship. If it had focused on that and kept that at the heart of the movie, instead of going to cutting to Storm Reed and Tysa Farmiga a lot, I think it could have been actually decent that and if they'd up the scares. Um, yeah. Because that's where I feel like it's overstuffed because there's all this stuff going on with the nun where she's coming back and you see her coming back th- and like possessing uh, Maurice and doing all these scares at the, at the school. And then meanwhile, cutting back to Tysa Formiga, she's like, Oh no, I just found out that the nun is back. We need to figure out what's going on. And she's like learning all this stuff that we already know mm-hmm. from what's going on with Maurice. And it's, just extra storyline, extra plot stuff just for the sake of it. Um, and as she's learning this stuff, there are more scares. Like there's a magazine stand scare that is just very weird to me. Um, there's just a lot of stuff that doesn't make sense uh, or it doesn't jive with each other. And I'm just like wishing that it was much tighter because if it had been, and there's like an easy fix. And if it had taken that easy fix, uh, you could have had a solid movie. Yeah, it did feel like her character was included almost as a just we need some some exposition for people who didn't bother to watch the first one. So yeah. she's going to be that avenue. But and yeah, no, it's go ahead. I was going to say it's just getting back to something earlier of the scares being so bad. I forgot to mention that I think I honestly laughed at some of the scares more mm-hmm. than I was scared by them. Even just early on, there's the thing in the opening scene where a priest kind of gets just flung into the air and lit a blaze. And it was just, I found myself chuckling. It just didn't feel as intense as they intended. It just felt kind of goofy, which also leads to the question of why is the nun kind of so aggressive and doing all these things to a bunch of random people. But then when it comes to the person that's already undermined it once, it's just always sort of like little scares and not actually taking action against them. Yeah. Yeah, I don't worry about logic too much in movies. <laughs> That's fair. But when no, but when oh, but, okay. logic is just like that egregious, I'm just like, all right, come on, you're. And I guess there's a, a sort of thing as horror movie logic, and because they want those more subtle scares, uh, yeah. But when those subtle scares aren't working, then you start asking the questions like, why is she doing this? It doesn't make oh, any yeah. sense, and it's just. I feel like there could have been a better series of movies where I think when I first saw teasers for the original The Nun and didn't know what it was, I thought it was going to end up being some sort of story of like back in the 1700s or something, there was a convent and maybe a nun got murdered by a priest or saw something she shouldn't shouldn't have saw or got wronged in some way or even some old school thing of getting killed for thinking she's a witch or who knows what, just (laughs) something where it was going to be an actual nun was killed and came back as a ghost and then for it to always just be this random demon coming up from hell type of stories, just like it takes a little bit of the steam out of it for me. Yeah. And you mentioned the exposition. So going off what you just said, a lot of the expositing is just like random Catholic lore gobbledygook. And it's just like a lot of horror movies are based in Catholicism or Christianity. And it's just like, 
we're always being introduced to more demons and devils and all this type of stuff. And I think you have to do something a little bit more interesting to stand out. And the nun two definitely doesn't. It's just like, no, yeah, just a lot. Like I said, a lot of gobbledygook that I don't remember any of, uh, any of now that it's been a couple of weeks since I saw it. No. And there are also some parts that make you start questioning, like, is the nun able to be in multiple places at once or this demon? Cause it's like the nun is off doing some stuff, but then there are some other horror elements that seemingly are happening simultaneously. Right. So it's like, are they able to sort of like split off or are there other demons just kind of tag teaming in to help out? What's going on with that? I don't know. Yeah. A lot of it just doesn't make much sense and it's not scary. I think that's ultimately what it comes down to. That's about all I have to say. Was there anything you wanted to finish off with? No, yeah, I'd say there's a goat creature that pops up at one point that, at oh, least visually, yeah. is creepy. I'll give them that. It Nothing that happened with it was that terrifying, but visually it was just sort of like, oh, okay. <laughs> like, you can say that about the goat creature and the nun. Like, visually, they're not pleasant to look at. They are creepy, but it's when you have that to work with and you don't use it to actually elicit any terror. Right. It's just a little disappointing, yeah. He's no Black Phillip from uh, The Witch. Unfortunately, no. because that's a good horror movie. Let's move on to our wild cards. Um, yeah, no, I, I I thought that September, to be honest, was one of the worst months of the year so far, at mm-hmm. least, or at least disappointing. Um, and it doesn't help that I didn't like the creator when a lot of other people seem to be at least mixed on it. Um, Luke, since you sat that one out, let's start with you. What is your wild card for September? So my wildcard might be a bit cheating, but mm-hmm. since it only came out now, around end of August, beginning of September here in the UK, I'll use it. And it's sure. Past Lives. Oh, go for it. I bl- Did you talk about it already here? I, I mentioned it a few months ago when it came out here, but you can go for it. Talk about whatever you want. Uh, I'll be brief. It's one of the best movies you'll see this year. It's uh, one of the most subtlest movies you ever see. I really like the story because it resonated with me. Obviously, I'm an immigrant also, so Mm -hmm. living in a different country for the last 12 years now. And so there's a line of dialogue that I don't see quoted at at all when people quote this movie. And the, the line goes something like, uh, for him, uh, it's uh, by the main main uh, uh, actress, and she says something along the lines of, for him, I'm the one who left. For you, I'm the one who stayed. And it just hits you. So if you've been through something, anything like that, where you immigrate to a different country, that just hits so hard because it's so true. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't know whether it can you can understand how painful it is sometimes. That's this just simple line. And just hit me. Um, it's also subtle movie, so don't expect it to blow away, blow you away like soon. Right. It has nothing, you know. It has nothing. How would I, how would I put it? Nothing big about it. Everything is subtle. Everything is humanely done and executed, but it stays with you. For example, I'm just you know when the movie wrapped up, I there's a, like a 10, 15 minute walk to where I live. I usually just you know put on a headphones and listen to podcasts. Mm-hmm. As I'm walking, and out of, and for this after this movie, I just wanted to be in my own world on that walk, and to think about this movie properly. And the more I thought about it, the more I loved it. And 
to me, that's a sign of great movie. So past lives is a hundred percent worth seeing. I love it when that happens because I'm the same way. I, I drive 10 or 15 minutes to the theater, but I always throw mm-hmm. on a podcast or music right away. Mm-hmm. But if mm-hmm. a movie was affecting enough, I'll just sit in silence and try to let it continue to wash over me and just kind of mm-hmm. seep in because fat past lives has a devastating final shot. Uh, yes. I think that is the one big moment out of the whole movie, but mm-hmm. yeah, I don't want to spoil it for people who still haven't seen it. So past lives, great, great choice. Jason, do you have a wild card? Uh, yeah. Due to me getting lost in the text and uh, accidentally watching one movie instead of the good money one, I saw the kill room yesterday, which nice. I know was sort of limited. Everyone was trying to find showings and couldn't even mind. It was like, their everyday had one showing at like 10 50 AM and that was, Oh it. my gosh. Yeah. Very odd. But yeah, I know we talked about, uh, what was it with the creator saying that was the most movie or whatever mm-hmm. that line is. Uh, one yeah, of this, the movies of all time. Yeah. This was also one of the movies of all time. Just <laughs> this was one of those ones that felt like they may have filmed it within a week. It was, and I don't say that in a super negative way, even though it sounds like it is, it's just very almost kind of, 80% bottle episode and just nothing too crazy happening. It was interesting enough for what it was. Like the performances were fine. Uma Thurman was a little over the top for me, but she's playing a art de- art dealer running her own sort of art place. And so I guess those are sort of eccentric characters anyway, but it, mm-hmm. she felt a little over the top, even considering that uh, Sam Jackson is a little underutilized. He's sort of just a, plot device to connect some people together and Joe Manganiello I thought was pretty good even though he's mainly tasked with being brooding but an interesting enough story I would say it felt like it kind of went along was interesting was interesting and then you started kind of looking at the clock and being like okay there's only like five ten minutes left they got a lot to wrap up here and oh man it just sort of like really ramps up right at the end and so I mean there were definitely some issues but it had just enough lightheartedness. There were a couple chuckles here and there, but never really dipped too much into the comedy. I think maybe going a little heavier on that, making it a little funnier could have been even better. But yeah, if we were ranking it, this would be sort of low side of liked it. I think just sort of, it was fine. I wouldn't pay to go see it in the theater again, but if you see it on streaming at some point and have nothing else going on, it might be worth checking out. Sounds like you had a solid time at least. Like, yeah, I mean, I had the waste. theater to myself. That's always mm. an enjoyable time when you just look around yeah. and see nothing. Yeah. Uh, my wild card, I'm also going to cheat just a little bit because my wild card is four movies. It's uh, the Wes Anderson shorts on Netflix, the Roald Dahl shorts, um, Poison, the Ratcatcher, Wonderful World of Harry Sugar, and one more that I can't think of right now. But I... Really, really liked two out of the four of those. I liked the first and the last one. Um, Wonderful World of Harry, Henry Sugar was the first one. Then there was The Swan. Then there was A Rat Catcher. And then there was Poison. I really enjoyed Poison and The Wonderful World of Henry Sugar because those had Ben Kingsley, Benedict Cumberbatch, and best of all, in my mind, Dev Patel um, and Rafe Fiennes. Those are four incredible actors and... I think only one of them, Ray Fiennes, has been in Wes Anderson movies before. And the ones who haven't, 
perfectly slide into his style and his tone. Um, I'm not familiar with Roald Dahl at all. So like, I don't have that sort of connection. So maybe that's why I kind of bumped against the middle two that didn't have that cast. But the first and the last one, uh, they have that sadness that Wes Anderson kind of has around all of his work. Um, the first one, Henry Sugar dips back into his life affirming nature out of or after the some of the more dour aspects. But the last one is a bit more dour to close off than you're used to from Wes Anderson. Um, but at the same time, these look like they set up a stage, a, like a stage play. And these are just actors doing like a decent budget stage production that is being filmed in the Wes Anderson style. Um, the sets are purposely like stage-like and not realistic to what we've seen in the world. Um, and, it, and it works really well. Um, yeah, I just enjoy watching these. Three of them are 17 minutes. One of them is 39, I think. So they're a nice breezy watch. If you want to just sit down and effectively watch them as one feature film, you could do that. Um, but if, especially if you're a fan of Wes Anderson, these are totally worth watching. Let's move on to our last segment real quick. Luke, what is your favorite movie of the year so far? Across the Spider-Verse still. Uh, any particular reason? Um, it was, I didn't expect what happened in that movie. I didn't expect anything about that movie to resonate with me as much as it did. I think the everything was the first one was great and the second superseded it in every way. I know few people, including yourself, have problem with that movie. I hear you. I don't necessarily agree with those problems, but mm-hmm. fair enough. But no, it just worked for me so much. I actually seen it twice in the cinemas and bo- a second time it was even better. So yeah, that just doesn't happen a lot for me. I think it's the first maybe year. The my number one movie of this year so far is animated movie. Oh, nice. Yeah, that's one where while I disagree a little bit, I mm-hmm. see what people really like mm-hmm. about it. Um, so I, like, I'm not going to fault you, or I'm not going to just be like, mm-hmm. "What? That's a dumb pick," or anything like that, because I definitely understand why people really are, are gravitating and. And again, it was so a much. surprise factor because unlike others, I didn't really care about it so much. I just thought, oh yeah, it's actually coming out. Oh, okay, I'm not quite sure if I'm going to see it in a cinema. And then it was getting oh, rave wow. reviews. So I was like, okay, so it's getting really good reviews. So you know what? I'll, I'll check it out. We'll probably be fine. And then I was just blown away with every single detail of that movie. So again, the power of unexpected. Right. I'll have to go back and listen to past episodes, but a lot of people have been saying Across the Spider-Verse is still their favorite movie of the year, mm-hmm. and I don't necessarily expect that to change. Um, Jason, what about you? So I think, realistically, my answer probably is exactly the same. And Okay. <laughs> I, although I went in with higher expectations, I think, and it even superseded those, and I don't have... Yeah. This, like Luke, I don't have the same problem with a lot of people about the way it ended, but... Uh, just for the sake of being different, I'll probably go with a different one. Uh, and with the caveat, I'll say that being in the first year of parenthood, I have had some limitations on how much I can see. So I'm still very anxious to see Oppenheimer, which mm-hmm. it has a very preclusive runtime. So I haven't been able to 
commit those three hours yet. And uh, Mission Impossible Fallout came and went from theaters so quickly that we weren't able to get to it. So that's almost on streaming. I'm very excited for that because I'm a huge fan of that series. So that may end up taking over Spider-Verse. Who knows? But uh, just to say something different from Spider-Verse, though, I'm going to dip back to Dungeons and Dragons, which maybe gets a boost because it was the first movie we got to go see in a theater since our son was born. Mm. But I think it just was such a going to how Spider-Verse was for you an unexpected experience. Mm -hmm. I knew it was going to be kind of a goofy, fun thing, but it just really surpassed everything I thought it was going to be. It was much more charming, really Mm -hmm. did a good job of just presenting this huge universe and kind of, even though I don't know a lot of the lore, you know, from a lot of people saying it, that it really lived up to a lot of what they know about the game and just everything about that was just fun, good Mm -hmm. time interesting story even beyond that and it has a good parent and child relationship at the center for being your first movie since your son's born that's true always a plus and it wasn't another rehash like you said of the kind of lone wolf bringing along the kid it was actually a well-connected father-daughter thing Mm -hmm. so yeah realistically spider-verse is my answer but to say something different we'll say dungeons and dragons yeah yeah Mm -hmm. Well, mine also hasn't changed for a few months, and it's still Asteroid City. I uh, nice. watched it for the third time the other night. I've seen it three times already, and it has only gone up every time I saw it. Because I watched Asteroid City, then I watched it again, and then I saw Oppenheimer twice. And I said, oh no, maybe Oppenheimer is my favorite movie of the year, because I, it's great. I really love it. Um, but I went back and watched Asteroid City. It's so tender, and it's so sweet. Um, and it just gets to me. I, man, I knocked it up to my third favorite Wes Anderson movie. And that's saying a lot because I, I'm a big Wes Anderson fan, obviously, cause I'm keeping it on theme here with these last two segments. Um, yeah, I've talked about it at length on this podcast and on Letterboxd if you want to go read that, but yeah, I really, really love Asteroid City. It's really funny, really heartwarming, really life affirming in a lot of different ways. Guys, we did it. This was this was a lot of fun. For our last thing, let's send people out to go find us other places if you want to. Um, Luke, outside of this very podcast episode, is there anywhere else people can find you? Uh, they can find my reviews on lostinmovies.co.uk or find me on X or <laughs> Letterboxd and Movies Lost. Anywhere you want to send people, Jason? Uh, yeah, I mean, they can go find me on Letterboxd, just at Jason Mac 86 I'm about to do one of my, I would say like every one or two month dumps of mm. going, oh shoot, I haven't posted anything in forever. I need to catch up. And after the past week of really binging some of these movies, I have some thoughts that we obviously got out here. So I'm going to do one of my usual just binges. I kind of go in bunches. So I'll probably put up like 10, 15 things in the next week here just to get some stuff up there. Nice. Uh, same for me. You can find, follow me on Letterbox at Robert's Thoughts. And you could find all of us on SifPop.com, where we write best ever challenges and reviews. So with that, yeah. just a quick reminder that SifPop Writers Room is part of the Studio DNA network. You can check out other great shows at studiodna.media. If you're interested in writing for SifPop.com, or if you want to get in contact with us, then you can email us at writersroom at SifPop.com. But until then, you can join us. Join me next month as I talk with Sif Pop writers Austin and Mike to discuss some of the biggest movies of October. But until then, we, of course, have to get back to the writer's room. <laughs>